I was, I was low and it was super turbulent and all of a sudden I was engulfed by flocks of birds. It was the most amazing thing. There were eagles, there were seagulls, there were crows, and they're all basically flying around on this thing and I could tell they were fighting for control just like I was. This is Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you for joining us today. Welcome back to the podcast. The intro tease you just heard, now that's just a small sample of the experiences and stories our guest pilot Tom is going to share with us on this episode. Tom's journey does include some powered aircraft as well as gliders. I personally enjoyed his entire story, and I don't think you're going to want to miss any of this, but... For those of you that are hardcore glider pilots and enthusiasts out there and you just can't wait and you want to jump ahead to his soaring part of the journey, you can do that and the timestamp there is going to be in the show notes. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Tom Cousins, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So glad to have you on the podcast today. How are you? Oh, thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. I've been looking forward to it since I talked to Mitch earlier and uh, just happy to talk soaring and flying in general. Yeah, you know, Mitch has been telling me a little bit about your story, but I am excited to hear it. And actually, before we get into the meat of the interview, that's exactly what I want you to share with us. Give our listeners kind of your aviation journey from the beginning until now. Now, I know there's probably a lot there, but take us through some of the highlights with all the different aircraft, the airports and the people. Well, sure thing. Uh, Well, the main thing is it actually started with my father who saw a P-51 Mustang on a ramp at an airport someplace in the mid-50s and said, I'm going to learn to fly so I can buy one of those. Um, He wound up buying an F-8F Bearcat and um, also bought a Mustang. I was in a club with a a Mustang and a T-6 later. But I still remember my first uh, memory of uh, airplanes was actually at Fox Field in Lancaster, California, as a uh, five-year-old watching my father fly patterns in the Bearcat. Um, and back then, of course, little kids could wander around. It was no big deal. And I just sat on the grass and watched him fly. So that kind of piqued my interest. And I um, actually initially took a couple of soaring lessons at El Mirage Field back when it was operational there at El Mirage Dry Lake. And um, uh, it was too hard to get out there. You know, I didn't have a driver's license or anything because I was 14. And so that kind of dropped away. But then uh, I actually did solo as a Tabria at Fox Field in Lancaster. I chose that over a, a group of really shiny Cessna 150s because I wanted to learn a tail dragger. I wanted, I figured if I could fly a tail dragger uh, from the get-go, I could pretty much fly anything. Ah, uh, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So that was kind of it. And uh, my... Uh, I actually took my private pilot check ride uh, on graduation day from high school, and so <clears throat> the ink was barely dry on the on the license. And I grabbed my uh, my buddy out of high school and my two brothers, and we went and flew a 172 around the Antelope Valley, and then came down, took showers, and went to commencement. So that was quite a quite a day. 
Yeah, what a day. Wow. <laughs> I actually intended to be an airline pilot, but I just didn't have the, uh, really didn't have the life plan uh, engaged to do so. And so um, I went to uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo uh, and got an aeronautical engineering degree and went into engineering. And um, still was thinking I wanted to um, fly for a living. And so on my own nickel, I got my uh, uh, instrument rating and then commercial uh, uh, single and multi-engine rating. That that particular day, I actually flew a single engine aircraft. I flew a Cessna 152 and a Bonanza, um, a, a twin Bonanza uh, all on the same day. I, I took the uh, single engine and, and multi-engine check rides all in the same afternoon. That was a very, very long afternoon. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so, but then that was it. I basically, um, I wound up uh, getting married and realized that the uh, an aviation dream really was kind of out of the question as far as her career was concerned and began uh, a career as an aerospace engineer, which I did for uh, 35 years. Um, in, the, uh, in the mid 80s, actually 86, I decided I was going to get my glider license. I always wanted one. I always wanted to fly sailplanes. And so I went to a, a, an outfit called Aronson's Air Service in Rosamond, which is also in the Antelope Valley in Southern California. And I showed up. I actually, my mom lived in Lancaster. And so I, I went there with a change of clothes. I was going to, by golly, I was going to solo in a weekend, just show up on Saturday. And I was going to fly all day Saturday and Sunday and make sure I soloed that, that one weekend. So I arrived at 1030 in the morning on Saturday at Aronson's. And by 1230 and four flights later, I was soloing at 233. <laughs> so, oh man, yep. yeah, that <laughs> was, uh, you can't really do that these days, I don't think. But uh, yeah, I was actually looking, right. my, <laughs> I was looking at my logbook, you know, because I, because I was already a power pilot um, at that time, um, there were, there were just not that many uh, requirements for a transition. And so uh, I think I had four hours total glider time when I took my check ride in uh, for my private license. Wow. And there's where things got kind of interesting and not at the same time. Um, I was flying gliders for a little bit and then, you know, life kind of took over and I wasn't able to really afford too much to, to fly um, until um, very kind of happy circumstance. We had a, my brothers and I all got some inheritances. And so my, my younger brother and I decided to go in halves on a globe swift. Uh, it's a, a it's, or a Temco swift, actually. It's a, two-place uh, aircraft that was built in 1948. It was, uh, Globe was one of the uh, aircraft manufacturers that figured, hey, you know, we got all these thousands of pilots, pilots coming back from the war, they're going to want to buy airplanes. Well, as it turned out, they just wanted to make babies and, be, and, and get stay away from the air. So Temco didn't last very long, but they, they, the airplane that they produced was uh, just amazing. It was a uh, 125 horsepower, retractable landing gear, all metal. It looked like a P-40. And it sounded like one on the ground with a six-cylinder engine and, and uh, one stack for each cylinder. But the bottom line is it taught my brother and I precision flying. Uh, if you messed up, it was in the weeds. And many, many pilots piled them up just on takeoff alone because they were not flying them properly. So, you know, I mean, a good day on for us was to go out in the early morning when it wasn't turbulent and get quite a few landings in before we started attempting to fly to, to land at uh, uh, three point. Because if you didn't do it right, you, you felt like the landing gear was poking up to the top of the wings. It demanded precision at all times. You could not relax with that airplane for one second. And so it was a glorious airplane to fly. And basically, we, we sold it when uh, it he moved out of the area. And 
once again, it was the same sort of thing. It was like, well, there's other things I got to do, like buy a house and, and I was raising two kids and things like that. And so flying basically kind of went away for me until um, until a, a fateful day when I was flying a model airplane in the middle of a field and a, a guy came over to see what I was doing and mentioned this place called Cray Field and a guy named John Cray. And, and he said he was looking for a backup tow pilot. Well, at this point, I hadn't flown an aircraft in three years. Hadn't flown a tail dragger since the Swift, probably in about 10 years. Um, I just showed up and and uh, John said, yeah, check it out. See what you think kind of thing. And and um, so I went and got my biennial flight review in a Satabria at Santa Paula and, and showed up and jumped in this single seat Pawnee and proceeded to, you know, basically do a single seat test flight. <laughs> wow. there's, there's no duel in a Pawnee. Yeah. Basically just get in and fly it. <laughs> And uh, it was, uh, uh, it didn't take long to, to master it or not. I can't say I've ever even mastered the punny, but to get good enough to where I felt comfortable to tow. And thus began just a whole change in, in life for me when uh, just that one day at John's at, at Cray and, and that first tow and just the feeling of it, just this wild and woolly feeling of being yanked and I mean, in an aircraft, you don't necessarily feel like accelerations and decelerations, but in a in a in turbulence towing a glider, yeah. you're slammed against the straps, you're slammed against the seat, <laughs> back and forth, and trying to keep keep airspeed and and all the things that go on with it. And it's you know, I I love it. I love flying at the front end of the tow rope. And um, so anyway, I, that's kind of where it is. And there's also glider, um, you know, a lot of glider experience as well. So, but that's to start. Well. Reaching back for a moment of all the powered planes you've flown over the years, and I know you talked about the one you had bought, but what are some of your favorites and what are the most difficult or maybe tricky ones to fly? Well, as I say, the Swift was probably it, uh, just to to do it right, to fly well. I mean, to I, I think my brother and I probably were uh, among the very few that owned one and didn't land a gear up or, or roll it up in a ball. Wow. So... The Swift was really good that way. Um, my brother's Traveler that he built from basically scratch, a tw- 1929 uh, Traveler 4000 biplane, very unusual airplane in that uh, there's something called aileron snatching, which happened in old airplanes where um, at stall, because of the way that the ailerons were designed, um, it was the strangest thing. The, you'd get a little gust and the, and the stick would come out of your hand and get and almost come out of your hand in the direction of the gust, which is really weird. Well, with the Traveler, it happened all the time. So you'd be flying in turbulence, and the the wing would the airplane would be rocked to the right by turbulence, and the stick would go even harder right. Um, and so you're constantly fighting it, which was that was really wild. And so to to fly that well was another uh, another interesting experience. And um, my brother actually uh, got a, a T6 Texan, and that's a you know the uh, nice AT6, yeah, the World War II trainer. Right. Flying that thing was, uh, you know, it's a 4,000 pound airplane. And so the momentum of the thing is just mind boggling. When you're flying along, you pull back the stick and the thing goes whooshing up and just, you know, zoom climbs or zoom descends. The other thing that isn't, uh, that people don't talk about very much, but me as a light plane pilot noticed immediately was the torque of the engine. Actually, um, it's much harder to turn to, to bank the airplane. Uh, one direction than the other because of the because of the torque from the engine. Oh, wow. And so yeah. um, I think it was, yeah, it was basically, you know, the prop is spinning to the right and the torque is to the left. And so turning the airplane to the right, banking to the right was much more difficult than banking to the left. And so there's the whole thing of learning how to do that. 
I have nothing but admir- admiration for my brother just having done what he did and, and uh, you know, and flying that around like no big deal. But my dad also had a lot of different airplanes. He had a Piper Aerostar. And, you know, if, if you ever want to see a, a picture of an airplane that looks like it's doing 200 knots standing still, look at the look at the Piper Aerostar. Uh, it's a twin engine. The thing did 300 miles an hour. It was a magic carpet. We could fly anywhere across country in the thing in just a few hours. So that was really, really you know, an amazing thing, definitely at the top end of what you'd call general aviation, because there's not much piston end airplanes that uh, are much higher performance than that. So, yeah, that's moving. And there was the Piper Cub. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the Cubs climb from the back seat and with the doors open, you hang your right leg out the door if you want. You yeah. Know, things like that. So it's just it's, you know, it's just fun to be able to look back on all those things and to know that you can fly. And that's it's really a marvelous thing. It is. Absolutely. So just a quick diversion before we jump into the soaring stuff. We noticed from your bio notes that you're an aerospace engineer, and I know there are sensitivities around certain companies or projects for some of you guys. But can you give us some flavor of what kind of stuff you've done in that space or what was some of the coolest stuff you've ever been a part of? I was an aerospace engineer from the get-go. I graduated from college, uh, and literally the next week, I started work at Lockheed California Company and did that for about four years. Um, this is in the late 70s when uh, CAD CAM was just coming in, and so I was one of the, the very first to not have a drafting board. I wasn't really all that enamored with working at that particular company, and um, my buddy who had who'd come there come to Lockheed basically was looking around and he wound up going to Hughes Spacing Communications. And so I basically followed him there and was involved in non-recurring design of, of satellites. And that was where I spent the rest of my career was in uh, spacecraft design, manufacturing and launch. And so the arc of my career kind of it started with non-recurring design where, you know, our our thoughts became the spacecraft to um, being the launch IPT lead, integrated product team lead, uh, in which I was responsible for taking the finished product from the factory and launching it. And so that meant um, we actually rented C-17s from the Air Force to fly them either to, I was either going to uh, Florida to the Cape or to Vandenberg. And um, I was the, the launch campaign manager on six different missions. There were a couple of GOES weather satellites um, there was a TDRS satellite, and then there were some classified satellites that we were launching out of uh, Vandenberg. And so that was by far the, the pinnacle of my uh, my career in aerospace was to to see these satellites. And the thing about it is, you know, when they're being built, um, they're covered in all kinds of, of protective covers from dust and light and everything else. And the most amazing thing every time was to be there when the satellite was uh on the uh, the payload adapter fitting, basically, which would, would eventually be mounted to the top of the rocket just before it was encapsulated by the nose cones. And to see this work of art, it was a, it was almost like Venus on a pedestal to see the, the immense amount of detail uh, that went into each of these spacecraft. And um, it took your breath away. And so, you know, for me, I just, like I said, I, I had the best possible career a guy could want as far as engineering was concerned, because I was able to, I took the vehicles out there, um, my teams, various parts of, or various crews uh, that I would bring in would do different functions to the vehicle, integrating it, fueling it, uh, doing all the system tests, 
then actually uh, being, I was on the, the gantry uh, at the launch pad uh, overseeing the mating of the, uh, the encapsulated assembly onto the rocket. And finally, the best part of all, of course, was to be on console like, like Gene Krantz, you know, failure is not an option kind of deal and having my own call sign and uh, watching the launch uh, from the control room was just, oh, that's yeah, I couldn't ask for better. And so I retired out of that. I'm actually working full-time now for a consulting company. I never thought that would happen again. I, that's one of the things that I failed miserably. I was actually staying retired. So I'm, I'm still actually <laughs> yeah. working in aerospace. Um, and I'm now on the rocket side, which is kind of fun. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I can tell the rocket guys, well, here's what the spacecraft guys are thinking. And so that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, living as well. And I'm really enjoying it. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot going on with that right now. There sure is. And I'm actually working with SpaceX launches. And so it is a kick. Uh, those guys are. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, they, you, you can tell a SpaceX guy they're all skinny and wear T-shirts and uh, look like they haven't slept in a month. That's basically what. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's basically it. They're enthusiastic, incredibly bright and extremely motivated. And uh, they do a fantastic job. And it's 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 been a real, real privilege to be able to work with those guys launching payloads on right now, we're actually launching GPS satellites um, on SpaceX rockets and it's marvelous. Wow. To be a part of that, that's gotta be awesome. It is. It's wonderful to, 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 you know, be 65 years old and, and, and to have your thoughts still being worth something, your thoughts and experiences. I couldn't ask for better. Oh, that's very, very cool. All right. So let's jump into the gliders and tow planes. On my notes here, it says that you made the big plunge in 1986 when John Cray was looking for a t tow driver. Now, you mentioned him. Now, that almost any time a pilot is towing gliders, they end up flying them too, of course, right? And speaking of John, can you tell us a little bit about him and the glider op back in those days? Mitch also noticed that there's an airstrip in the desert there called Crayfield, and he was wondering if that had any connection there. Yeah, it actually does. Uh, just one quick correction. Um, I started flying gliders in 86, but I met John in 2001. Yes, John was a, actually a former uh, quality engineer at Lockheed. He uh, uh, was uh, made quite a name for himself. I heard about John in, in totally different circles about what he was an epic quality guy. He came up with, with failure modes for things that were crashing just intuitively. And so, but he always loved to fly gliders and, and, his dream was to own his own airfield. And so in the mid 80s, mid to late 80s, he retired early from Lockheed and uh, bought this patch of land. And yes, uh, Mitch, um, in fact, you know, that is uh, that is the field. It's Cray Field. It's off of a it's out in the middle of absolute boondock nowhere. Um, he didn't even have power going to it. If he needed electrical power, he started the generator. Oh, wow. He pumped his own water out of the ground. You know, to drive there was uh, it was like you know, time warp to the fifties when you'd walk, when you drive up to this place and, and everything was kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe a little rundown if you will, but I mean, he had a couple of two thirty threes and some one twenty sixes, and he bought that place specifically to take advantage of, uh, of the shear line that used to uh, run out of uh, Cajon pass northbound and would intercept the onshore flow coming in from the Palmdale area. And you had these gigantic, teardrop shaped lines of clouds that would extend miles into the desert. So you could get towed up into the shear line and basically just fly, fly with never turning, never circling, never thermaling, just hopping from thermal to thermal along this whole thing underneath the cumulus clouds. 
And that was his thing. And his company was actually called Shearline Arrow. He t- catered strictly to uh, uh, private clubs out there and um, did not actually do any instruction there himself. It was all basically just clubs. It was a, a club airfield. Oh, okay. So when I showed up, you know, John was getting up there in age. He was in his uh, late 70s. And things were kind of slowing down a little bit there, but he still had a couple of Pawnees and that's where I cut my teeth. And he was just an amazingly resourceful guy. He did, you know, he could pick up two pieces of junk and make something out of them and make them fly kind of thing. He uh, was just a true Renaissance man. You know, there were so many people who were influenced by him in such a a good way, just in terms of getting their starts. Uh, In in my particular case, my life completely changed when I met him and was given the opportunity to fly his aircraft and tow gliders. Very cool. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains. They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, go to soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. Fast forwarding a little bit to 2009 when you got your first glider. How about tell the listeners a little bit about your first ship, what kind of flying you did, and where were you doing most of your soaring at that time? Well, I, you know, the, after a few years at Cray, I realized that my next aircraft was going to be a sailplane. <laughs> um, there was one particular <laughs> right. guy. Who, yeah. <laughs> there was one guy who let me fly his, uh, his labella briefly. You know, I, I had one flight in and I think he was trying to, uh, to, you know, get me the kind of like, like he said, I think that the first, he said the fl- first flight's free. <laughs> yeah. I knew it was yeah, going to be right. boring. It's all it takes. <laughs> a few years later. Yeah, exactly. Well, a few years later, you know, I realized, you know, I, I think I really want to do this. And I'd at least come to the realization that I didn't want to get an entry level glider when I as my first. I wanted to have something I could grow into that would be interesting to fly in and that I'd want to keep for a while. And so um, I was looking around for a 15 meter ship. Now, you know, 15 meter gliders, they have uh, flaps, which, you know, it, it opens up a whole new sort of window in terms of performance and um, the way that you fly. And so I decided I wanted to get a 15 meter glider. ASW-20s, which were made in the mid-70s, were a little out of my range, but there were these uh, PIC-20s. Uh, they were made by, actually made in Finland in the uh, in the mid to late 70s. 15 meter ships, they had, uh, they were the first to have a, um, uh, a complete flapper on sort of system, basically from at least my model, the D model had from, from the wing root all the way to the tip was a gigantic aileron and flapper on it. It was all reflex. The entire thing would reflex. And so the thing that was kind of cool about it was to, when you tow it up, you'd, you'd basically stabilize at your best glide at, with the flaps and trail, and you'd adjust the trim so the glider would fly hands off to the flaps and trail. And from then on, you adjusted your speed by just playing with uh, just the flap settings. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so I've actually not that's my first and only glider. I basically, um, I don't fly enough to really warrant buying something, you know, the, the, the object of my lust is an ASW 27 or 29, but I just don't fly enough, um, to really warrant owning something like that. So the, the pick is marvelous. It's a really honest glider. It thermals really, really well, and it doesn't do bad in terms of a straight line. It really doesn't have any bad habits per se. 
you know, I just enjoy flying it. So I've done a lot to it. You know, I put in all the modern avionics and whatnot into it, including a moving map, which basically made it possible for me to begin to do cross-country soaring because I could feel, fly confidently enough uh, knowing that what the glider was going to be doing simply because of what the moving map was offering in terms of display and what the capability of the glider was too. So that's basically it. Um, it's It's been the pick all the way. And I fly it at, uh, at Mountain Valley right now. I um, I tow at Crystal, but I've, I like I like leaving the lighter at Mountain Valley because I like the opportunities for flying where where you can go from there better than I do right. at Crystal. That's being just honest. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, it looks like your next gliding milestone happened in 2014 after you'd had a few years practicing in the mountains and stretching your wings on some cross-country flights. And that was uh, Dust Devil Dash. That's an event founded by your friend Rob Morgan and flying out of Tehachapi a small airport there near the Mojave in the high desert outside LA. But how about tell us all about that? It sounds like quite pretty cool local event. It's been a lot of fun for a lot of pilots for a lot of years. And Mitch said you had a good low save story here that you maybe could tell us about a few weeks back there out of Crystal. Yeah, the Dust Devil Dash really was my my first uh, uh, event in terms of actually going someplace and not having to worry about coming back. That's the one thing about it I think that is uh, that makes it a bit unique because you know with sailplane competitions you're you're usually flying out in returns or flying some sort of you know ternary tasks and things like that. Well, with the dash. It's basically everybody, you know, you, you show up, it's always the, the weekend after Labor Day. And the reason why it's there is because the conditions aren't that great. And so it really takes some work to get some places and your chaser guy doesn't have to go as far. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> we basically, the, the flights start, uh, you know, in the morning of a Saturday after Labor Day. It's a, it's a one day event and you basically, you, you take off, you have a set to altitude of 7,500 MSL, which is about. 3,500 feet above the, the field elevation there in that mountain valley. And that's it. Off you go. And so you basically go as far as you can in a straight, uh, uh, in a straight line distance as far. That's how it scored basically straight line distance, uh, as far as you can until sunset. There have been some stunning flights, uh, in 2014 actually was amazing. The, the winner actually flew to Burley, Idaho from Southern California to Hatchapi. Wow. Yeah, that was that was some flight. He landed just before sunset too, so that's where. Yeah, as you say, I I, I did uh, have a little bit of experience as far as mountain flying was concerned, um, and that you know that really came to play uh, as far as flying the dash is concerned. You know, it attracts all kinds of different flyers. This particular year was a, a very good year. The conditions were such that everybody was was able to make it out of the Mojave, the uh, the mountain valley area, Tehachapi Valley area. And um, get out into the desert. The previous year, half the field made it to California City, which is only 15 miles gliding distance. The conditions were so bad. But this year was good enough that we had several people uh, landing in north central Nevada. The winner actually made it to to Elko, Nevada, which isn't too far from the uh, Idaho and, and Utah borders. And so, in my particular case, yes, I uh, my dash was very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I basically um, ba- made a very low save. Uh, I was, uh, we all were able to take off. There were cumulus clouds just south of the field. Everybody got up to about 11 and a half and then started northbound because we felt that was the best way to go. Sometimes we've actually gone eastbound toward Arizona, but but uh, definitely north was, was where it was happening. And most people got away very quickly. And I made the mistake of, of 
veering off to uh, a particular formation called the Rock Pile near Kelso Valley, uh, which is not that far north of, of Mountain Valley. And I got very, very low. And I'm looking at guys thermaling above me at 12,000 feet. And I'm down here at about, about 4,700 and, you know, trying to circle over this little lump and realizing I am in big trouble. And so I really thought I was going to land in the desert. And it's funny, my chase guy, Cam Martin says, yeah, the concern I had was whether you'd bleed out before I got to you. He was listening to the radio and what I was talking about. And so, but in fact, what happened was I, I saw in the distance the, of the Honda racetrack out on the desert floor and I kind of eyeballed um, the angle and thought, you know, I can probably make that. And so I basically just flew. It was a 10 mile stretch and I was below 500 feet the entire time at 10 miles, fly, basically following the, the sloping alluvial flow from the mountains. And uh, the, it dropped away enough that I had about 800 feet clearance to the ground and I was all set to land on this access road uh, to the Honda test track there. And I found a little lump, a little thermal, just a little bump. And I kept on working it, working it. And it took me away up to 9,000 and I was on my way again. But I thought my day was done in the first half hour. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Nice. That was... <laughs> <laughs> and so then I had a, a, another kind of low save not far away from there and was able to get away from there as well, actually, at a place called Coso. Uh, Coso Junction, I nearly was on the ground there as well. I was talking to Cam and I said, what's the wind like? And he says, well, it just picked up from the south about five knots. And that turned out to be the infill for the thermal that I took that I picked up. And that one took me up and away. And I was able to then make it to the Inyo Mountains, uh, which are just to the east of the Sierras. And that's where they we call it rock polishing, basically where you're so close in that uh, the, the tips are polishing the rocks. And and that's where that portion of the uh, of my abilities kind of came in and just under, you know, being able to uh, work lift that is pretty much like ridge lift, but also thermals in the middle of it all. And to look at the uh, at the winds and the uh, and the, where the uh, the directions of the slopes of the, the bowls and the in the in the hills were and said, well, that looks like that may be a decent spot to try and, and see if I can get anything and, and working your way uh, up into the hills and and on your way. And that's pretty much what I did. It was a lot of uh, very low altitude. But I had Lone Pine Airport made the entire time. So if I really got stuck, I could I had a place to land, which was really nice. Well, I know uh, our producer, Mitch, you met him out at a soaring academy back almost a couple years ago now, I think he said. But when he was trying to get his uh, he was working on his pilot rating there for gliders. It sounds like you still tow there and help the owners with the odds and ends there around the glider board. Could you maybe share with listeners a little bit about your time and memories at the soaring academy and what are some of the things you appreciate about what they are doing there and mitch can never say enough about you know the great people chris and julie out there as well as the countless volunteers that show up for their various outreach events yeah chris and julie are amazing um you know they they have a vision for this place the southern california uh, soaring academy is actually a 501c3 they do teach um, people to fly, and Mitch, of course, is a is a very a great benefactor of that. But they also do a lot of um, of pro bono flying. They they have the uh, wounded warriors to come out uh, once a month, and they they fly right for them. They also do a lot for um, <clears throat> some particular uh, magnet schools called SCVI, or it's a, it's a uh, there's Southern California there's I think it's called Southern California something or other. But you know, sorry about that, but. Bottom line is that they, uh, for the, the kids that are involved in STEM uh, in those classes, they will bring them out and actually give them a free flight in a glider. 
They'll also take gliders, they'll box them up in the trailers and take them to the schools and assemble them in the parking lots and, and allow the, the, the uh, students to take a look at them. And they actually give them uh, little tests and quizzes uh, so they can you know, kind of get the feel for what's going on. So that's what's really marvelous about it. And they do, they have uh, quite a few guys, uh, you know, former fighter pilots and uh, uh, all kinds of people with all kinds of different experiences that are out there um, teaching people to fly gliders. So and Chris and, and Julie basically eat, sleep and breathe it. In my case, uh, I started there in about 2014 um, when uh, John had actually passed away in the spring of 2014. And as soon as he did, the operations at Crayfield ceased. Chris uh, heard that I was uh, basically done towing there and contacted me and said, hey, we'd sure love to have you tow it uh, here at Crystal, you know, whenever you'd like to. And so, um, you know, I basically... It's a very, very different sort of system. Um, the way that they they do things there, you know, they they have a very set way of, of thing of especially like ground ops and things like that, which I think is a, it, it doesn't quite adhere to the solar soaring uh, manual, but it still uh, is yielded basically zero incidents on the ground because it is unequivocal the way that they do this. I feel very safe flying there. Their aircraft are well maintained. They have a top-notch fleet of gliders, ASK-21s, uh, so you know that students get to fly something that is actually fairly high performance. It is indicative of the kind of gliders they would fly once they got away from training. You know, they are very, very hands-on in terms of every single individual who comes there that wants to learn to fly. They get to know them and and they tailor the uh, learning experience for them. Julie is especially there when if there are. Uh, our young, you know, female fighter, if female uh, students and whatnot, uh, she's there to give them personal sort of uh, in, encouragement and whatnot. Because she actually uh, did learn to fly as a result of going out there. She learned to fly gliders and got her private license in gliders. So at any rate, it's a like I say, it's a marvelous place. They they always are looking for people to come out and and tow and and fly rides and teach. Uh, and as I say, many times you're doing it for the benefit of others who could not possibly afford it or could not possibly dream of doing something so amazing as to fly in an aircraft at all. It's a unique experience, and I'm really happy to be there. In your bio, you shared a great quote with us that you say encapsulates your philosophy and best practices in soaring and in aviation in general. Let me just read it here real quick. Flying is inherently risky, but with adequate training and maintenance, the risk becomes acceptable. Let's segue now into a safety segment, and we're going to divide it up maybe into a few specific sub-questions. You've obviously been on both ends of the tow rope for many years now in the tow plane. What are a couple of events or near events that maybe pop into mind over the years? What did or maybe almost happened, and what did you or the glider pilot behind you take away from all of that? Well, first, I'd like to mention where that quote came from. That particular quote came from Tony LeBeer, who was the Lockheed test pilot who first flew the, the U-2 spy plane and the P-38 Lightning and lived to a ripe old age and actually didn't die in the cockpit. And so that's one of the reasons why I, I particularly like his <laughs> that's that quote because it's yeah. <laughs> someone who had the had the cred. It, the uh, as far as on the both ends of the tour, yeah. For as far as towing is concerned, um, there is something that I learned early on. I remember the the first day I flew, I heard a guy basically saying, "And if you really get in trouble, you give him the rope." And it, that just sounded like 
you know, it's almost like, oh, you're going to hang him or, you know, what does that really mean? And, and what it means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So giving him the rope basically is pulling the toe release and releasing the rope from your end. Yeah. Uh, in, if, you know, if they get right. in trouble and it is a very, that is the one thing about soaring, you know, soaring is a, a fundamentally a very safe kind of uh, flying. Um, the speeds are fairly low. The aircraft are extremely well built and can uh, withstand G loads that uh, general aviation aircraft, you know, can only do about half what a glider can do. And so generally when there's, you know, if, if there is a problem and, and you have an incident in the glider, generally the, the, you know, the crew will walk away. Um, and so that's a really good thing, but, uh, there is a critical, um, portion of the flight, which is, uh, the beginning of the flight, just a few feet off the ground when both aircraft basically are, are you know, they, they've got no place to go except straight ahead. Yeah. And that's where, um, both pilots, you know, the, the pilot of the glider and pilot of the tow plane are relying on each other's abilities to safely, uh, climb away to a, a more safe altitude. In my case, I, uh, have given a couple of people the rope. In the one case, it was a guy who truly was just out of sorts. He just had no business being there. I, th I think he, this is uh, actually back at uh, Cray. It was a club guy. And I think he hadn't flown in a few years and had forgotten all the hand signals and pretty much everything else. And we were at about 600 feet up and he was in a 232, which that is a very, very large training glider. It weighs probably almost as much as the Pawnee does. And so when people move that thing around behind you, you really feel it. And he wound up, I was, as I say, I was at about 600 feet of the ground and uh, suddenly my tail swung around and I thought, oh, he's trying to steer me. And so I basically let him steer me in the direction that he wanted to go. And then a moment later, I was looking down at the ground, the, oh, the, uh, the nose of the airplane, he'd actually pulled so hard that he pulled my tail up and I was at about a 45 degree Mm. angle to the ground looking basically at it there was about one second and i gave him the rope because it was like there was no way that yeah. i could recover from that if i would have tried to pull back on the stick and try to level out i probably would have snap rolled the airplane and spun it in and that would have been it for me yeah um so instead i gave wow. him the rope and um i we both survived um the the he and he wound up paying for the tow rope but that was where a particular, where basically the guy lost control. He had no business doing that. And, and uh, you know, I, I read on the riot act when I got on the ground. Another time was with a guy who had an experimental glider that he built in the 50s and he brought it back out to fly it. It looked like a pterodactyl and it had an extremely high toe speed and whatnot. And so this poor guy was trying to fly this thing and he would lose control on the ground while we were just starting to roll because he had no aileron control at all. And I gave him the rope two times, basically just one after another. And mm. I'll never forget it because we, we went ahead and we rolled everything down because there was a slight wind blowing the other direction. So everybody all traipsed over to the, the other end of the, of the airport and, and got set up. And I remember looking down on my lap, thinking to myself, I may die. You know, this, if this gets out of hand, I may die. Do I really want to do this? And something in me said, yeah, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> and so we took off and we're running along. And uh, sure enough, he got off the ground and it's like, okay, great. And I saw him kind of, he was going, you know, we have mirrors on the tow plane so we can see what's going on behind us. And so right. I'm watching him. And basically when the guy goes outside of the, outside of your, uh, your field of view in the mirrors, it's like, okay, this is it. We're done. I'm going to go ahead and give him the rope. But I saw yeah. him starting to gain control of it. And I thought, okay, I think he's going to make it. And then suddenly 
I got jerked into the into my straps, just this like, oh my gosh, I'm still on the ground at this point. And he's flying. And then bang, I got slammed in the back, you know, my 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 head slapped in my I got slammed back into the back of the seat, my head snapped back, and all of a sudden I'm flying. Oh my and I have no idea what just happened. And as it turned out, he had a malfunction in the in the wingtip. And it basically, he, he was about 15 feet over the ground and the tip hit the ground and he was going sideways mm. and the tow rope broke. And that's what, what oh <laughs> so it's like, that's it. So I called, so I, the, the name of the, I changed the name from pterodactyl to pterodactyl at that point. Oh man. But, uh, oh my goodness. So that was, you know, it's, it, but the bottom line though, is basically, you know, you, there is a time where altruism just does not work. And that is the time when you are both at such a low altitude. Um, it's every man for himself. It's basically, you know, he's going to kill me. I'm going to let him go. Yeah. Or I just lost the engine. You know, I'm got to, I got to save myself. And you know, the tow plane's going to have to, or the glider's going to have to do whatever he wants. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things that do have to happen. And so consequently, what's interesting is my biennials. I, I, I do them partially with Chris, who's been around a while, and he will hit me with these particular scenarios and say, what would you do? And it's like, oh, shoot, I didn't think of that one. And so, uh, you know, all of them are very, very good because you, you keep those in mind uh, and you're constantly uh, thinking about what you'll do if something happens. It's you, you yeah. cannot be you can't be relaxed. You never can relax. That's for sure. Just Soaring, the makers of the Glider Sim Pro Sailplane Simulator Cockpit, would like to congratulate German pilot Ben Fest for his recent victory in the first ever FAI sanctioned aviation esports event in history the Sailplane World Grand Prix, which Ben won after several days of exciting competition against some of the top Condor soaring pilots from around the world. If you are looking for a best-in-class dedicated sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor or Microsoft Flight Sim, look no further than the Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. Check them out at justsoaring.com or at just.soaring on Instagram. Now, flipping the last question around, with you and the glider and someone else flying the tow, maybe share with listeners a tow or two that sticks with you for whatever reason, good or bad, or otherwise. Well, yeah, there's actually two at, at opposite ends of the uh, of the spectrum. There was one in which uh, I was we were taking off. I was actually doing a biennial. I was sitting in the rear seat. I always do a I always do my flight reviews from the rear seat of the glider because that's where I'm the, the only place I'm ever going to fly two place glider because I always fly my passengers in the front seat. We were about 300 feet above the ground, and for whatever reason, this tow pilot decides to make a hard bank right turn and just go streaking on downwind and basically went swinging. And so I'm zinging along in this ASK-21, and I could not keep behind him, and the rope broke. Boom, just like that. Mm. And it's like, and I'm, I'm with the instructor, and, he's, and I said, you know, I'm a little, I, I made the comment, I'm a little bit high for a 180. And he says, yeah, I think you can go ahead and you've got the energy. Go ahead and just do a complete pattern. And so I, I went and actually made a, an abbreviated downwind and landed. Oh, wow. No issue there, but I was just kind of flabbergasted that this guy would do that. I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he thought we'd done a rope break and he just wanted to get back in. I'm not oh, really man. sure. By the same token, I, it was actually this season and I was at Mountain Valley and um, I was towing behind a guy named Bill Lanningham up at uh, up Mountain Valley. And it was like, it was Zen-like from the moment we started rolling to the moment I released. It was just like, it was so calm and so peaceful. And he turned and I turned. I felt like we were one. It was just, 
the most amazing feeling. Like I'd, I'd never felt anything like that before during the entire toe. And then I released and I, I called down and said, toe two, thanks for the great toe. But I meant to go and see Bill afterwards and say, I don't know what you did, but man, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there, it just depends, you know, it's just, uh, it's conditions. It's, it's your particular abilities at that time. It's the condition of the toe plane. It's the attitude of the toe pilot, any number of things. And all of those basically can combine to uh, to make a very different experience from flight to flight. Now, given you have a lot of experience mountain flying and given we have many listeners from parts of the country or the world that don't fly in rough mountain terrain that often, can you please spend a few minutes and maybe some detail talking about safety considerations flying in the mountains and what are some common mistakes that have wreck gliders or taken lives over the years and what we as glider pilots should always keep in mind while we are mountain soaring? Well, the main thing for me, the very, very first thing is keep your speed up. I find myself talking to myself out loud, speed, 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 particularly when I'm in a really tight situation and it's, you know, and I'm close in and I'm not really, you know, I'm not much lift or whatever and whatnot. The, the key thing is don't ever pull that stick back and slow things down. You've got to keep the speed up because especially in mountain conditions, when you're very close to the terrain, the relative airspeed of, you know, the, the airspeed of your glider the relative wind can change very dramatically, uh, can be, you know, can go plus or minus 20 knots. And so you need to have enough maneuverability You need to stay above stall. You need to, you need to be able to have uh, the maneuverability necessary to do what's, whatever you have to, to get out of a bad situation. Um, so that's the first thing. The next thing is always leave yourself an out. In my case, for instance, the, the kind of soaring that I do, and, and, and I think the Sierras and the uh, Inyo Mountains and the White Mountains basically afford this as the mountains are so tall and so high and they slope away so, so quickly, you know, that the, the slopes are very, very steep. What it means is you can have one wingtip that's 100 feet away from the grass and you're counting the grass, blade, grass blades to your right and your left wingtip is, is 8,000 feet above the ground. So, you know, the idea, though, is that, you know, if you if you get in trouble, you can always just turn out away from it and just get away. And if you're really rattled, just go land. That's the main thing. The other thing, of course, is always keep in mind where the wind is blowing, where it's blowing out of. Yeah. Keep in mind where you are, where the rocks are um, or the or the slopes or what have you, um, where they are rel relative to the wind and where you are relative to them. Clearly, of course, you don't want to be on the downwind side. If you get over a ridge, for instance, and you. You want to make sure and stay upwind of the of the top of the of the ridge um, if you're that high up. I've come into um, into mountains where I'm way way down. I'm maybe a half high. I mean, I'm just a couple thousand feet above the desert floor, and the mountain is is stretching ten thousand feet above me. And you basically start there, and that's that's a an interesting thing. I'll never forget the first time it happened, and it and it always goes this way too. Is that you get in this one spot where you get this nice little piece of lift, and you're starting to turning, you're getting a little higher and things are looking really good. And the, the thing you want to do is just kind of stay in that nice little thermal over there. When you realize what you have to do is start going farther up slope. And it seems scary because, oh my God, I've got to get closer to the ground again. And is there going to be any lift there and whatnot? But you've got to do it if you intend to climb and get to the top of the ridge. And so you move a little bit closer to a little bit farther up the ridge and you start working down. Oh my gosh, there's another thermal. Okay. And you keep on going and going and you gradually work your way up 
And you look back and say, my gosh, I was way down there before. And suddenly there you are getting cl pretty close to the, to the top of the ridge. But as I say, the main thing is to, you, you have to visualize where the wind's coming from and the shape of the mountains, the shape of the slopes, where you are to determine if, if this is really going to be safe for you to, to, to uh, try to fly. And of course, you also want to maintain enough of a distance, especially if the winds are high, you want to make sure that you maintain enough of a distance away from the ridge that uh, the wind doesn't perhaps blow you dangerously close to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the very first times I was flying, I was at what we called a Sorfari out of Bishop, California, and we were flying in the uh, Inyo Mountains or flying up to them. And we got word that a guy had killed himself over the switchbacks in the Sierras. It was a guy in an ASW-20 and he got slow oh, and spun it in. And, um, yeah. you know, that's what mm. will happen. If you do not pay attention to that, if you don't keep your speed up, I mean, it's a, as you can, you kind of get, you can kind of see where I'm going with all this is that there's a lot of multitasking going on. There's a lot of things you have to keep uh, account of while you're flying in there. You can't let go of any one thing. You can't fixate on something. You have to be continually aware of things. You, you may want to be in this one little spot, but realize, you know what, if I try that, I may get slammed into the hillside and, and I'm just not going to do it. And there's other areas where, as you say, you know, what, as I said, the guy at the ground looks so scary, but well, there's lift there. So go sort of thing and just keep on climbing up. The end result is, of course, you know, when you do get up to the top, I got a, I got my, got the dog here. He's just went for a walk. Gotta love the pets. They always yeah, want to know what's going so, on. <laughs> oh, absolutely. He's no exception. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the one thing that does happen, though, the payoff is when you do make it to the top and, and you're able to get like the, the White Mountains, for instance, are just such an amazing. Um, it's a, a mountain range that goes about 60 miles. You get to the top of that and you can get up to, you know, 16, 17,000 feet and go screaming along at, you know, 100 knots plus and just hopping from thermal to thermal. It's so busy and so faster that they actually have a different frequency for, for air to air just in that one area oh, wow. because people are coming and going at such rapid rates from either from the north at Minden or for the south, you know, we're in my neck of the woods. But that's what the payoff is, is when you get up there, the view is just spectacular, hundreds of miles in all directions. And of course, we're always on oxygen as well. Mm. So that's the thing I, I think about sometimes, you know, the, the folks in the east, you know, flying the Appalachians and those kinds of places. And, and you know, they have a, a very different kind of soaring there, you know, people in, in Florida, things like that. And the East Coast is, it's very different. It's, it tends to be a little bit, probably the conditions aren't as strong and uh, your altitudes generally don't get to, don't get that high. Whereas in the Sierras, it is a dynamic, fast, bonsai world out there. I mean, you're on oxygen and you're flying it, you know, at 90, 100 knots between thermals and then zinging along in these 10 knot thermals up to altitude and um, getting, you know, dangerously close to the clouds. You know, we have something called cloud suck where you basically get so close that you actually get sucked into the clouds and you have to be careful with that as well. Just the, the dynamics of flying in the Sierras is very, very different. It's just an e-ticket ride the whole time when it's when it's really right. Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm used to flying here in the east and Appalachians and I did go to out there to Crystal and fly for a little bit and yeah wow it was uh, it was night and day <laughs> it really is yeah yeah wrapping up the safety segment and just in general is there anything else that you want to toss out there stuff that you think just goes under the radar or maybe it's too often happening or almost happening to pilots that you're around one thing that i really don't um 
care for is to see that uh, there are quite a few pilots and student pilots that really don't pay attention to spot landings. You know, a glider is a glider and um, you get one shot at landing. And so, and sometimes that shot is not in an airfield. Sometimes it's in a, in a pasture or, or, you know, maybe a very small lake bed or even a roadside. There's any number of things. And I've watched people fly halfway down the runway before they touch down and knowing that, you know, if that happened in real life, you know, that could be really, really bad. Yeah. And so um, if there's one thing I'd like to stress to people, and this is not just students, but everyone alike is pick your spot on the ground. I mean, what every landing should be an event. Every landing should be a learning, a learning event for you to, you know, see how well you can do to land as close as you possibly can to where you want to land and to do so steeply, for instance. One, you know, every flight I do is is generally all my approaches, and especially in the Pawnee, they're they're very high descent rates, but uh, in my sailplane, I don't like to come in flat. I don't want to rely on the the glide ratio of the glider to save me. I want to come in with lots of, of uh, dive brakes. Um, at least half to, to a third the whole way down. And so I'm, and with my flap settings on, on my glider, the nose is actually quite looking down quite a bit. The, the idea then is to be able to come over a, 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 an obstacle behind you and land, get on the ground safely. And so that's one thing I think people should be really thinking about is that every landing, they should be trying to hit the numbers or pretty darn close to them and, um, you know, see how short you can make it. I think that's, that would be extremely good for glider pilots and, and really power pilots too. The one problem I see with power planes a lot of times is people just dragging it in. You know, they're way, way out there and they got all this power and just, and you can see, you know, the glide slope is basically just almost flat. So they don't even know where they're going to land because they're, they, the, the relative angle of the runway is such that it's hard to, to, to judge where they really will land. And so I'll never forget one time I was with my stepmother who owned a Grumman Tiger I was flying that airplane. She wanted to kind of give me a little checkout before I flew her airplane around for a bit. I turned base and and was way high. And I remember she looked at me and went, Jesus, Tom. And I said, Ellie, it's going to be okay. I'm going to probably have to add power. <laughs> and, you know, so it was basically, you know, I, I like I like to come in real steep, full flaps, full boards, everything, um, or not full boards. You, you definitely don't want to come in full boards on a glider. You want to definitely have something left over. But the idea is to come in as steep as you can and put it down, you know, where you want to. That's basically that. Yeah. Good advice. So if you had to pick a flight, just one flight in a glider that for whatever reason will stand the test of time and is a flight you probably never forget. Can you tell us about that day and what made it memorable? Well, you know, I think probably the most memorable flight so far is the last one, which was the dust devil dash I mentioned before. Um, getting to that point where I really was, you know, I, just did not know where I was going to land. I wasn't sure I was going to make it. And the one thing that that came to mind, because of course, you know, I did a heck of a postmortem off of it, off of, off of it, saying, "Why the heck did you get yourself in that position? And what on earth, you know, drove you to do what you did?" And um, the one thing that came to mind was simply in anything in which risk is involved is just don't panic stay the course. If you decide to make a particular decision and this is the one that's going to save you, then just don't panic. Stay on it and and work it. Don't suddenly, you know, bail and do something stupid. There was actually another time also, I mean, the, the, the times that, that come to mind are times where, you know, it was just plain scary. 
And there was another time, and it was with Rob Morgan, actually. And the two of us had decided to go skittering off to the north from uh, Mountain Valley. It looked like there was some cumulus above what are called the Paiutes. They were probably about 25 miles away, and we decided to go for it. And the conditions weren't that great, and it was dead flat. And I'm just flying and flying and flying. And we finally get to this one ridge, and the, and the, and the queues are just beyond it. And I'm low. And I, I, turn and, uh, I turn at that ridge, hoping that there's a little bit of lift or whatever. And I realize I am really, really hosed. Um, there's nothing but a gigantic valley of nothing but rocks and trees and rivers and things like that. And it's like, I have no place to land. If I land here, I will not get my glider back and I may not survive it. And I realize what have I done? And Rob was a little bit higher than me. And he just went diving off into this, you know, above this canyon that I could barely see. And I said, well, dang it, that's what I'm going to do. So he was high enough that he found a thermal on the left side of the of this canyon and was able to work his way out. I was in the middle of the canyon. I was actually below. I was down deep in the canyon in a glider, following it down. And I couldn't see the end of the canyon. It actually turned to the right a little bit. And I was basically thinking, okay, you know, if this doesn't go where I think it is, I'm hoping it's going to Lake Isabella. I'm going to pancake it into the into the riverbed. There was no place for me to go. And sure enough, you know, I made the slight turn. Ah, there it is. There was Lake Isabella, and there's actually an airport called Kernville uh, on the uh, east shore of it that I, I pay, pretty much think I had made. But I also saw a little queue popping up from a little knob a bit below me, and I started working that and worked my way out of it. But I'll never forget see, watching my legs wiggle back and forth on the rudder pedals because I was just, you know, I had no business being there. But once again, it was don't panic. Just, you know, stay the course. Do what you got to do. Commit to what you're going to be doing. Solve the problem when it gets there. Don't make a problem to solve the ones that, that you encounter. Well, there is one more I just got to say. This one was just so amazing. It was when I got into a dust devil. Um, it was the, about the only lifter that, that I was in. I was in, the, I was in my pick and I'm hauling away on this thing. And this thing is almost trying, flipping me upside down. I was, I was low and it was super turbulent. And all of a sudden I was engulfed by flocks of birds. It was the most amazing thing. There were eagles, there were seagulls, there were crows, and they're all basically flying around in this thing. And I could tell they were fighting for control just like I was. And no one cared who there was. I mean, bird of prey was flying next to next to his next meal, but they weren't paying attention to me either because they were all in this massive gaggle of stuff. And I, I realized just for a moment, I, I felt like I was one of them. I felt like I was a flying animal. And we all, all we flying animals were just fighting for our lives in this big dust devil. And then as <laughs> wow. soon as that happened, they were all gone. All the birds were gone in different directions. And there I was, you know, in the, you know, still flying in the dust devil. But that's one that will, I will always carry with me was to, to be a, a, amidst all of these birds. They didn't care that I was there with them. They were just too busy flying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, uh, there that, that pretty much takes care of that, I think. In your estimation and consideration, the people you've flown with or known over the years, did you ever know any glider pilots without any powered flying experience at all that were just phenomenal glider pilots? And do you think that in general, folks with some powered flying learn quicker over time, will be better glider pilots, all things equal? Uh, there actually is a glider pilot that uh, was truly amazing. Um, I haven't seen much of him uh, lately. Uh, his name is Dale Masters. He, he was flying at uh, Crystal and retired recently. He had an amazing, amazing ability to demonstrate energy management. 
and uh, which is really key in soaring, especially cross-country soaring. And uh, the one that really came to mind was something he did with me. It was actually when I was first checking out to fly at Crystal, and we were in a, an ASK-21. We'd gone back, back behind what was called the, uh, the, fir- the second ridge. We'd gotten off toe. I was still trying to figure out the glider, and he was telling me to do something or other, and I wasn't paying too much attention, and I let us get on the downwind side of the second ridge. This is pretty scary stuff. And I'm looking at thinking, oh man, we, you know, we're going to try to have to, we're going to have to basically fly down behind the ridge and hopefully we can make it to a field before we get to Crystal because I didn't think we were going to make it home. And he said, I've got it built up. And I, I, I tied up the seat belts and he proceeded to dive straight at the mountainside at about a 45 degree angle and then zoomed up and pulled about four G's going straight up, pushed over the top, dirt's flying all over the place, zoomed back down again and did the same thing very close to the ridge. And we actually got higher and higher and he got us above the ridge on the backside. I've never seen anything like that before. Wow. And um, I was just glad as heck to be uh, to be clear of it. And we made it back home. No problem. And he asked me a question after the flight was over. And he, he asked me, were you scared? And I said, I was flying with Dale Masters. I knew that he was going to save himself and save me too. So that's you know, really a, a key thing there is, as I say, energy management is everything. And Dale was, a, was the absolute guru of it. Nice. Yeah, Dale's, Dale's awesome. I actually got to fly with him when I was out there. Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA-approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems, and now introducing the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag portable oxygen system. Small, lightweight, and simple to use, the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. So remember, our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. So Tom, before we get into the lightning round, we usually like to give guests a chance to give a shout out to the people that one way or another positively impacted their soaring lives. Instructors, airport operators, glider buddies, family. So here's your shot. Uh, people that have... Uh have had an influence on me. There are some people out there who are long past. And I guess that's the problem is that so many people that I know uh, that had such an influence on my life uh, were years and years ago when I was first starting. I started flying almost 50 years ago. And so I have known pilots who had shot down Germans in the war. I've known Germans who have shot down Americans. You know, John Cray, of course, was an amazing guy. He was one of the greatest generation. He flew transports uh, between South America and Africa during the World War II. Vern Hutchison was a, an amazing glider pilot who taught me a lot about, once again, about energy management, about what you could do. And he had been in a submarine stuck in Tokyo Harbor in World War II. Um, my first instructor had 30,000 hours in transports, um, things like that. It's just a uh, one thing, one guy that was kind of interesting was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Poncho Barnes, uh, who was uh, part of the right stuff. She had that, that uh, bar out there in the desert that uh, Chuck Yeager used to go to. Well, her son was my checkride pilot. He was the one who gave me my private checkride. Uh, and uh, he was a son of a gun. Not a very nice guy at all, but boy, could he fly. Even though he'd had polio, uh, he was still a, an extremely good pilot. 
I've known a lot of guys that basically, you know, tangentially just because of knowing my dad that were just fantastic people to, to learn from and to gain uh, uh, experiences from and just to watch them go. And so I've been exposed to excellence all my life in flying, and I would hope that maybe a little bit is rubbed off. Wow. That's awesome. So we, we come to our lightning round, which is a fun little segment. Not sure if you've heard about it. We asked you some questions. You can answer the question or you can say pass and move on to the next one. So I take it the answers are going to be uh, uh, as lightning as the questions. <laughs> yeah, you know, usually. But, but you know, sometimes we've gotten some interesting stories off this lightning round. So, yeah, we try to keep it quick, but, okay, great. but feel free to expand a little bit if you need to. So you were at an equal distance point between Crystal and Tehachapi, and the weather forecast looks about the same. So your glider is in a trailer behind your truck. Do you A, flip a coin, B, go to Tehachapi, or C, go to Crystal? Tehachapi, even, even though Crystal is free. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever wish that Tehachapi and Crystal weren't on the same 123 radio frequency? Uh, occasionally, yes. Um, as a tow pilot uh, at Crystal, I've, I've had to have to be calling and doing all kinds of stuff while I was trying to call back into the office and whatnot. So, uh, but on the other hand, I've been at Tehachapi when I've heard Crystal and I've chatted with uh, the office every now and then to say, hey, Zulu Niner's here. <laughs> nice. <laughs> have you ever flown a glider outside the U.S.? And if not, and budget no consideration, where would you want to go? I actually did. I flew a Blonic L13 in Slovakia. Nice. I'd, I'd heard about this guy, Timo, in a place called uh, Fatra, the Fatras. It was actually a mountain range in Slovakia. I was there uh, with my son at a model airplane contest, a junior um, free fly model airplane contest in Lucenitz, and I drove two and a half hours to the Fatras, and I had Timo take me up in a, in a L13 behind this the tow rope was about 60 feet long behind this. Uh, I don't know what kind of airplane it was, but uh, man, that was a wild ride just getting up to altitude. Oh man, that's a short rope. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> if you could fly a glider at only one bank angle other than level, what would it be? One bank angle other than level, probably about, probably about 40 degrees. Okay. Yeah. You know, 40 degrees means you're going to, you're, you're in the term thermal tight. <laughs> so. There you go. <laughs> What's your favorite type of lift? All things equal thermal wave ridge or convergence. Um, I think I like ridge the best I, uh, wave. I, I don't really care for wave cause I just don't like what it, the, the, there's a number of risks that you take there and that I'm just not interested in, but ridge is just plain fun. Um, getting close in and polishing the rocks of the wingtip. I, I love doing that. What was the worst place you've landed out in and why did it suck? You know, I've actually never landed out anywhere except a runway, but the suckiest runway was Cray. Oh, okay. <laughs> so three gliders are in a thermal and it's like the only thermal in the area with limited other options. All three guys are doing left turns. Along comes a fourth guy and only a few hundred feet below the others. He enters the thermal in a right turn and announces his call sign and altitude for the other three guys above him as a courtesy. What do you do? Be polite and say nothing and keep your eyes peeled. Bark at him on the radio to rejoin in a left bank together with the other guys or just move along and go try to find something else. I would definitely bark at him or at least ask him kindly. Hey, you know what? You got to turn the other direction for all our safety. Right. 
If you had to pick one thing for lower hour glider pilots trying to learn how to thermal more efficiently and effectively, what would be your advice to them? Get used to flying as slow as you possibly can and don't be afraid of spinning out of it. Nice. Money, no object, and you could only spend it on a glider. What dream glider would you buy and what do you like about it? Oh, boy. ASG-29. And uh, just because it is a very fast glider, it's it's also... uh, you can change wingtips on it. You can make it a 15 meter or an 18 meter ship. That one is definitely has become the object of my lust. If you could only fly one type of powered aircraft for the rest of your days, because God ordered it that way, what type would it be and why? Uh, I would fly a uh, an F1, Harbor, Harman F1. It's basically a, a modification of a Harman rocket. It's a two seat aircraft. It looks like a, like an extra. It looks like a, a purpose-built um, aerobatic airplane, but it's super high power. Uh, my father, he used to fly a Bearcat, flew in one of those, and uh, he played a game that he only had done in the Bearcat called Hello, Mr. Cloud, where he basically saw a cloud, aimed the airplane at it, and punched it. That is the one airplane I, that would keep my interest the rest of my life. Wow. <laughs> now, you're on a podcast here, and lots of people are listening, so here's an easy one. What's the most annoying thing CFIs do when you're towing? Most annoying thing CFIs do when I'm when I'm towing? Yeah. Well, probably uh, trying to steer me without telling me. Um, I don't mind boxing wakes. You know, they can do that all day long. But uh, yeah, it's basically steering and because I'm not sure what they really want. Okay, same question, but for students. Oh, what's the most annoying thing with students? Oh, my goodness. Hey, listen, there there are some students who they gain a rep. It's like, oh, no, it's so-and-so, man. You know, beware. Um, they're just so completely out of control. It's like you can't believe that they, they just don't get it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're all over the map. You know, they, they it's, you wonder how, how it is that they could make a glider do something like that on a tow rope. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's the annoying thing is you just hope that they, you know, they are going to be okay. Okay, Tom, have you ever had to bail out of an aircraft? I never have. And speaking of bailing out, if you had the choice of bailing out or landing in a lake, which would it be? I'd rather land on a lake. At least I've got control all the way down to the surface. Um, you, you, you know, in a parachute, you have, there's just a lot of risk items that come into play, like will it open, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And where will I land? Oh, I, I'd land on a lake. Now, we didn't ask Howie this on the last episode, but... This one is a favorite because of the variety of answers that we've actually gotten. So here goes. You have a gently sloping uphill field you can land out in, but your flight computer is showing a brisk 20-knot tailwind. And the only other field that looks viable as your land out becomes imminent, while that field is sloping about the same gradient but downhill, but has a 20-knot headwind. Which one do you pick and why? I would pick... Whatever field I would pick with a headwind because I have uh, control of the aircraft, whatever speed it might be, but it just means that my ground speed touching down will be that much slower. The difference between a 20 knot tailwind and a 20 knot headwind means 40 knots difference in ground speed when you touch down. That's a lot of energy to try to peel off. So I'd always land into the wind no matter what. Uh, Good advice for sure. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a blast chatting with you and hearing your story. You've had some some amazing adventures. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm just honored to be invited. And uh, I, this has been a really, really great uh, time talking with you, Chuck. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And I, I know the listeners have enjoyed it, too. 
Well, we'll probably touch back with you. We often do check check in with our guests and see what they've been up to and take care. And we'll chat with you soon. Well, thank you very much. And thermals to you, Chuck. Happy soaring. Wow, what an exciting interview. Thanks again, Tom. Looking ahead at our next episode, we will be back with a new guest pilot as well as some new soaring segments for you next time on 106. We will have a new listener logbook as well as a new segment from Sergio, the soaring master, be back to chat with us. And don't forget to drop your story on our website at soaringthesky.com. It is super easy. I don't know how it can be any easier. Just click on the contact us, then hit the blue and white microphone icon that says share your story. I know a lot of you have had some great flights and are holding out on us. Don't be shy. You can even remain anonymous if you like. So until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.